ignition sequence start. Everything. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm George Drake Jr. I'm Craig Shank, and this is Everything Sounds. In December of 1965, the Beatles released their sixth album, Rubber Soul. But we're not focusing on Rubber Soul as a whole today. We just want to focus on side two, track four. Now, George Martin is often referred to as the fifth Beatle for the influence he had on the band's music. He produced each of the Beatles' albums, and not only that, he was a classically trained musician himself. So if he had an idea for a musical break or a melody, he could just sit down and play or write it in a moment's notice. And there's one instance on Rubber Soul where he did just that. George and I thought it would be great to have George Martin on the show to tell us his version of the story, but not surprisingly, we didn't hear back. So we did the next best thing. We found some quotes from him, and we had someone reenact them. Here we go. Okay, so while writing in my life for Rubber Soul, he said that John hit a bit of a snack. There's a bit where John couldn't decide what to do in the middle, and while they were having their tea break... I put down a baroque piano solo which John didn't hear until he came back. Originally, he wanted that baroque part in the middle to be played on a Hammond organ. But after trying it out, he realized that it just wouldn't work. It didn't sound like he wanted it to. He decided to use a piano, but if you know the song, what you hear doesn't sound like a piano. George Martin didn't just play the part and leave it like it was recorded. I did it with what I call a wound-up piano, which was at double speed, partly because you get a harpsichord sound by shortening the attack of everything. And it turns out that he couldn't play it at real speed anyway. It was just too fast. So I played it on piano at exactly half normal speed and down an octave. And when you bring the tape back to normal speed again, it sounds pretty brilliant. It's a means of tricking everybody into thinking you can do something really well. When he slowed the song down by 50% and played the piano along with it, naturally, it sounded slow, but it was still quite pretty. When it was sped back up to normal speed, it created something that sounds like a mix between a piano and a harpsichord, and that's the sound that we know today. Fast forward almost 40 years to the early 2000s, and two guys, Nick Zimuto and Paul DeYoung, who together are known as The Books, are putting together their second album. It's called The Lemon of Pink. While recording a song called Tokyo for the album, Nick Zimuto used that same production technique that George Martin used on In My Life. He couldn't play a guitar part in real time, so he did the next best thing. Slowed down the track, played it, and sped it back up again. Tokyo. Okay, so the people who know me know I'm a pretty big books fan. Okay, understatement of the year. That's coming from the guy with their entire discography on vinyl. Eh, what can I say? And not only that, you've got multiple copies of the same albums, but just different editions. I'm a completist. 
it is what it is. So much of a completist that you've got the box set, again, with all of the same albums in it. Ugh, what is this, Gang Up on George Day? I think every episode, we just gotta beat up on you a little bit. <laughs> Hilarious. Anyway, uh, the books disbanded in 2012. Bad day, two gin and tonics, story over. Yeah, lots of tears. <laughs> Nick moved on to form a new band, simply called Zumudo. And um, I live in southern Vermont uh, with my wife and my family um, on the top of a mountain. <laughs> Although he's been making music since the late 90s, he still won't classify himself as a musician. I don't know anything about music at all. Not the first thing about it. <laughs> but does attribute his career in music to his background in art. Like, for example, I made this Death Star-shaped plaster ball with a speaker in it and had it hung from two points. So like, you know, like a kid on a swing, when you wind him up, he'll like unwind again. So it was hung from the ceiling by two points so you could like wind up this Death Star. And then it was, uh, the speaker uh, was kind of facing out and I put a microphone up to it. And so every time the speaker would come around the microphone, it would feed back. He called it a shy rock star. And so, um, but it would come to rest facing away from the, the microphone, so it would be quiet unless you wound it up. He has another piece with the same idea, but instead of the movement creating sound, the sound creates the movement. It's called the spoon box. Yeah, the spoon box. Which is actually a fairly simple mechanism. It's made with two speakers enclosed in a box. One is behind a plexiglass plate and the other is behind a zinc plate. And at the center of each plate are two spoons. And there's a metal spoon on the zinc plate and a plastic spoon on the plexiglass plate. Behind each spoon in the center of the plate, he drilled holes. Um, right in front of the speaker so that a puff of air can come out of the hole. And the spoons are on hinges so that they can... Uh, kind of jump and then return to their starting position. It's kind of like the spoons are dancing. So, depending on the sounds you put through the box, you can get the spoons to dance in various ways. And you can also get, you know, more representational sounds to come through at the same time. His work as an artist in the past isn't the only thing that's influenced his music. His education has played a role as well. He attributes some of what he calls his technological approach to music to his chemistry studies in college. But while doing his lab work, he realized that science really wasn't the route he wanted to pursue at all. I kind of saw my future laid out for me. Uh, you know, what my life would look like if I continued on with lab work. And it would either be like working as a professor in a university or working for a corporation. Uh, under fluorescent lights for the rest of my life, and I just I couldn't see it happen. I just didn't want it to happen. And around that time, Nick found out that he had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that kind of knocked me off of my <laughs> my path pretty pretty cleanly. That helped him get the courage to leave chemistry behind and focus on the things that he really wanted to do. I was right at that age where I'm just like, okay, like, you know, life is to be lived. I'm going to do what I want to do. So that kind of pushed me more towards the, the creative side. From his work with the books and Zumudo, 
It's easy to tell that Nick has always had an interesting perception of music, so Craig and I wanted to find out about the specific aspects of the music he's created that make it so original. We'll begin with something that sticks out on every books album, the found sound and audio clips they use. Over the 10 years that the books were together, the audio clips featured in their songs were from different sources, including a Winston Churchill speech. If Europe is to be saved from infinite misery and indeed from final doom. Self-help tapes. Putting your body on the line here. So tuning in now to the feet. Answering machines. Hello, Mary. Call to... Uh... And some that are just undefinable. Then there are the ones that they captured on their own. Nick explained that because at any moment there could be something to record, he just about recorded everything that he could. Bravo. That's it's sort of you know an obvious rule of physics is like you know. The more you record, the more you get. So I just always had tape rolling. Back in 2001, he was at the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California. And while he was filming the jellyfish exhibit, he caught something that would soon become the beginning to their song Motherless Bastard on their first album, Thought for Food. I was just in the right place at the right time, or maybe the wrong place at the right time, or because it was very wrong what was going on. But I. And I'm a parent, so I understand why, but um, you know, maybe you can play a clip of it so people understand what I'm talking about. But this little girl was very excited by it, and she just wanted to show her dad all of these jellyfish that she saw. And so uh, she's like, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, look at these. Mommy, Daddy! Mommy, Daddy! And so the father is obviously really tired of chasing his daughter around, and he's like, you have no mother and father. <laughs> you have no mother and father. And she's like, Daddy, no. Yeah, I do. <laughs> no, they left. They went somewhere else. No, they left. You know I do. I'm not, I don't know you. <laughs> no, they left. They went somewhere else. Dad. Don't touch me. Don't call me that in public. And, uh, it, it becomes this existential thing, you know, this... this <laughs> This alienation that I think, uh, you know, d kind of plays on your deepest fears, but at the same time, it's it's so extremely cute that it's, uh, you know, it's its opposite at the same time. So I love those things, those kind of sounds that contain their opposite in some way. So he has this great audio clip that he recorded at the aquarium, but why use it at the beginning of that song? How does he know where he wants to put it? Well, <laughs> it's really not as complicated as we had originally thought. Um, yeah, it's this feeling of quality, like, and, and sometimes I don't have good language to describe it, but when you hear something and you want to hear it again, and you're like, you know you're okay with hearing it over and over and over again, because it has this, this spark to it, um, that's the kind of stuff I want to use, and so that's, I don't really collect long recordings, I usually collect short ones, because um, they're elemental to start with, and they can kind of fit anywhere. So it's not like when I want to use a sample, I go over to a stack of records and start going through them. I already have like a, a library of samples to draw from. Not all of their own recordings were these serendipitous discoveries, these accidents caught at just the right moment. 
They also purposefully recorded and, in this instance, staged a dialogue. On their first album, there's a song called Contempt. It's a fairly straightforward song on the surface. It's got slow, simple instrumentation and birds chirping. But on top of all of that, Nick and Paul are talking to each other. What about my ankles? Do you like them? Yes. Yeah, that's me and Paul doing um, doing a text from a Godard film. Um, so the uh, it's it's originally a conversation between a male and a female where she's basically in this kind of uh, very self-conscious way going through her body parts and asking, uh, kind of making sure that he likes them, <laughs> like in order, like do you like my ankles? Do you like my thighs? And it, the, his answer is always yes in this kind of reaffirming way. Um, and you know, it was originally played by Bridget Bardot, and I don't know who the who the male was, but it's sort of, sort of this classic uh, French love scene. Oui. Très. And <laughs> so Paul and I decided to reenact it as straight-faced as possible, and um, so that's where the <laughs> that's where that comes from. Do you think I have a pretty big side? In 2004, the Ministry of Culture in Paris asked the books to contribute elevator music to the 1% art and sound installation. In 2006, they released the songs along with other spoken word tracks on an album called Music for a French Elevator and Other Short Format Oddities by the Books. There were some tracks on the album that found music where music wasn't really supposed to be. They found it in repetition. Nick said that Paul was really the driving force behind this aspect of the album, but what he did was he took a spoken word recording, and then he chopped out whenever the subject of the recording was mentioned. It sounds kind of confusing, but it really is a simple concept. Nick can clear it up for you. Um, so, for example, in Millions of Millions, they're going over some kind of, it must be real estate or something like that, where they're looking over accounts and how much you're owed and whatnot. Um, but the speaker, you know, it's this, this woman that has this really funny voice. She's uh, just talking about, you know, like 5 million, you know, 3.2 million. And, and it's, it's, these numbers keep happening. 19.4 million, 6.6 million, 5.275 million. And uh, when you take out the context, it's just a string of numbers that, um, you know, you can tell it's money related. And at some point she's like, could you please close the door? Can you shut the door? And, and he would kind of, whenever there was something that was kind of strange or funny, he would leave that in as well. And it became this, uh, yeah, really high comedy. I mean, it's really funny stuff. Paul did the same thing with a sermon that he found as well. And like of the word God where it's a sermon and every time she says the word god he just he just saves it and so it becomes this <laughs> repeated thing like god 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 like god, god said in all these different god. ways god the lord the lord the lord i am the lord god 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 and it has this um, almost existential kind of quality because it's you know, talking about this lofty subject but in this way that becomes totally theatrical, and obviously theatrical, um, which I think in a nutshell is religion. 
am the Lord of Lords, and I am your God, God. Another aspect to the music of the books is the lack of percussion. Now, don't get me wrong, there are definite beats and percussive sounds within their songs, but they were never the sound of drums or any other traditional percussion instrument. They captured sounds that they used in place of drums. Uh, it was purely a matter of practicality. Well, I no, I guess maybe that's not true, but um, I think that's mostly true. I just didn't know any percussionists, and uh, I wouldn't know what to do with them, you know? And the cymbals really bothered me for a long time. Um, because of the way that they can clog up the high end of, of a song or a track uh, or a sound. Um, and uh, so I was kind of anti-drum for a long time for that reason. Instead of having a drum kit to work with, Nick found ways to provide a beat to their songs with everyday objects. Yeah, I think every track has at least one interesting story where there's an unconventional sound being used. One of the most prominent is in a song on their third album, Lost and Safe. It's called An Animated Description of Mr. Maps. Nick used a filing cabinet to give the song its intensity. On that same album, the song Be Good to Them Always begins with a sound that may bring back memories to some people. You recognize it? It's the sound of one of those plastic balls that they sell in one of those great cages. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I recorded that in Walmart. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's like a big, you know, kickball, kind of plasticky kick drum sound. Um, with that kind of funny plasticky ring within it. Another method that Nick has used in the past is a pretty neat trick that's actually easy to do if you don't mind damaging your personal property. It all begins with a vinyl record. I, I've been really into uh, vinyl as a medium for a long time because of the artifacts. They really are interesting to me. And I think a lot of people become fascinated with the sound of vinyl just because it, um, it has this kind of nostalgic quality to it as well. In the middle of almost all vinyl records is something called a locked groove. Now this is usually just a silent loop that keeps your stylus from moving onto the record's label or somewhere else that it shouldn't be. You know, if you have the kind of record player that just that doesn't automatically retract, it will just sit in that circle at the end of the record, obviously. And so that I kind of think of that as like the negative space of the record. And and I just wanted to carve into it. He carves little lines perpendicular to that groove in the circle. When you put the needle in the locked groove and play it back, the dashes that you made create a rhythm. I went ahead and tried this myself with a record from my DJing days that I didn't mind scratching up with a knife. After a few minutes, my first attempt sounded like this. You don't have to leave anything as it is either. You can put filters on it or add some effects to make it suit your needs. I made some tweaks and added some reverb and it ended up sounding like this. So I remember taking, <laughs> the first time I ever listened to Kraftwerk, for example, like I think I was a senior in high school or something, and I took it out um, out of the library, took a whole bunch of like old jazz records and kind of weird, all the weird stuff that the library had, and I couldn't, you know, I'm like, what is this? I want to check it out. So I started getting records out from the library, and then I would bring them home and carve these little rhythms into 
the, the end circles of all these records, and I'm sure they're still there in the library, but you, you wouldn't hear them unless the record actually got to the very end. Um, yeah, I feel like, yeah, it's a, you know, it's like a blank canvas that you can play with that little circle at the end. Now that he's formed his new band, Zamudo, he's actually playing with a drummer this time around. But Nick didn't want just any regular drummer. He wanted somebody that could play rhythms that other drummers would have trouble playing. That spot was filled by a guy named Sean Dixon. Yeah, he's got a real intuitive sense for, for polyrhythms. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's again, it's one of those musical tools that allow, allows you to really play with time. Yeah, in kind of a deeply human way. It's like, uh, you know, it's easy to think of time in kind of a scientific way, like it's just ticking at this linear rate but that's not if you really feel what's going on time is moving at radically different paces in different areas of our lives and um so the polyrhythm kind of picks up on this idea of time kind of moving fast and slow at the same time if you're not sure what a polyrhythm is nick's way of describing it is so much better than anything that we could have done um you know it's like That's two over three, and then three over four. Right? So it's like, um, you look at the planet Jupiter, for example. You find it all over the place in, in nature. It's like if the four inner planets, uh, four inner moons of Jupiter are locked into this orbital pattern where the innermost one goes around four times for every time the outer one goes around once. And then the, you know, the ones in between that go around two and three times. Nick also said that sometimes people perceive polyrhythms to be different time signatures altogether because of how complex they are. Because although it suggests, you know, although three over four, uh, you know, two over three suggests six, you know, like one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, there's missing numbers in there, you know, it doesn't occur on every downbeat. So it, it's, it doesn't have that linear feel. It's like uh, the beat is kind of always catching up to itself and passing itself and then catching up again. And, um, yeah, it just feels, it feels like that represents the rhythm of life in a way that 4-4 can't. And when you think about it, 4-4 is kind of a drag sometimes. I feel like 4-4 has always been this kind of like almost colonial kind of rhythm, you know, for lack of a better word, because it's just going to march over whatever, it's just going to take over, you know. Polyrhythms don't take over, they kind of grow and kind of live in a place for a long time um, and uh, are kind of more indigenous in that way. The books in Zamudo aren't the same band at all. However, you can point out some similarities. There is still some found audio in the songs, the song titles themselves are still a bit witty, and in a sense, the music still isn't meant to be taken too seriously. Basically, Zamudo is a continuation of the books. Um, I think there's a sense of joy that is the most obvious connection. And I think uh, people who have seen the book show, they're not disappointed by, even if it's stylistically pretty different, I think they feel the, the same sense of, um, yeah, and the joy is the only thing, the only word I can, that really kind of sums it up for me is just, uh, you know, it's not music that's about me or about us. It's, it's, it's about something else and it's kind of intangible. But it's about human experience kind of distilled in various ways. 
And if you ever saw the books live, don't worry, Zumudo still uses that video component. We use video as um, sort of another member of the band, and uh, and it kind of pops in and out of the set where it's needed to kind of um, up the ante in a way. So I think fundamentally we're a pretty tight band, but the lead singer is oftentimes the video, you know, where that's that's kind of what the, the charismatic figure that... <laughs> That uh, carries it sometimes, and and that's definitely by design. Like I don't, I don't want to be a front man. It's just not me. It's not what I do. So it gives me a chance to kind of step back and uh, have these other crazy people uh, do their thing, even if they're not really there. Nick actually started the band before the books broke up in early 2012, but afterwards, Zamudo really began to take shape. One of the things when you're starting a new band after a breakup is the potential backlash from your already established fan base. But Nick's experience with forming Zamudo wasn't that at all. You know, people come up to me after the shows and they're like, this is a logical progression, this totally makes sense, and this is working. So that makes me really happy that, uh, you know, we're not alienating the book's fans, at least not all of them, uh, with the new stuff. Um, But I gotta say, it's like the thrill of being in a band is tremendous and I feel like I never have really been in a band up until now the books were a meta band you know even on stage it was like wasn't much going on and um, you know now it's just the quality of the performances I'm getting out of everyone they're just great players like much better than me and they always surprise me with what they come up with on stage they're very they play from the heart and they play with spontaneity um, and uh so I think people walk away from it feeling like it's a real show, you know, like it's a real rock show. George and I have mentioned before that music can be found all around us and that anything can be percussive. But the music of the books, and more recently of Zamudo, is proving that. By incorporating found audio and spoken word recordings, they weren't doing anything outlandish or creating a new genre. But maybe without realizing it, they began to open up people's ears to the sounds and voices around them, and maybe people started picking up on musical elements within their everyday experiences. To me, the books were always pioneers. From the beginning, they made music that they wanted to make, and were genuinely surprised to find out that there were people out there who were interested in what they were creating. Nick still doesn't consider himself a musician, but maybe it's safer to say that he's a sound artist. He takes elements that might not work with one song, and then copies and pastes them into another song. He's creating music that makes sense to that moment. Each Zamudo show is essentially a one-night-only installation. You know, I've seen enough venues and I've been to enough cities to kind of know how it works and what the expectations are and how to transcend them. And uh, that's what really what we're interested in now is uh, putting together a show that is very unexpected and, and full of quality and all kinds of different kinds of parameters. You know, it's never going to be for everybody, but I feel like uh, the, the real satisfaction of it now is to get to work with the people that I'm working with and having them, like, really be loyal to the project which I don't know I just that's the biggest compliment that I can have Get it all this 
You can find out more about the books and Zamudo from our website, everythingsounds.org. There you can also listen to some of the songs we talked about, among others, and also watch videos of Nick's sound art as well as a documentary made about his new band. And he also shows you how to make a rhythm with a record like Craig did in that documentary as well. And George, we're a small operation. It's literally just us. A lot of people want to help out, and the best way to do that Just take a few minutes and write a review of the show on iTunes if you like what you're hearing. Those reviews go a long way in giving us exposure and moving us up in the iTunes rankings. And it only takes you just a couple of minutes. So help us out. Find the iTunes link at everythingsounds.org. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Find out more about Mule at muleradio.net. And a special thanks to Tim Crook for playing the role of Sir George Martin on today's episode. Until next time, I'm Craig Shank. I'm George Drake Jr., and this is Everything Sounds. <laughs>